0: Good morning, church. It's a joy to continue to lead you in worship as we turn to the central part of our worship service where we get to hear from God's word. And I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Our text will be Romans 15, uh, 14, or 15 to 24. This is one of my favorite texts when I'm new to a church to be able to lovingly challenge them on God's great mission and passion that all the people groups of the world would hear the gospel and how we participate in that. And so it's really a joy for me to be able to open this text to you, and I pray that God's Spirit uh, would work in each of us as we hear from God's Word today. Can I invite you to stand in honor of the uh, reading of God's Word? I don't know if that's your normal practice, but if you're able, uh, would you stand as we hear God's Word together? Romans chapter 15, verse 15 to 24. But on some points I have written to you very boldly By way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything. Except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain." and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Friends, I assure you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever, and what you've just heard is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Let me pray for us before we continue to dig into this text. Our God and Father, we are so thankful for the gift of this Lord's Day to be able to gather as the blood-bought people of Jesus Christ to enjoy you, to worship you, to hear from your word. And Lord, as we want to consider this text from your word that we've just read, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that he would open this text to us today, that he would exalt your magnificent and wonderful son Jesus to us in fresh and new ways, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would give us a grand vision for what Christ is doing to build his church around the world. Lord, would you give us a very clear conviction of how we may play a part in that as those who've been redeemed by your grace and for your glory and for our joy. So bless this time, we pray in Christ's name, amen. India is about four times the population of the United States, almost 1.4 billion people. And of the Indians that are there, about 60 to 70% of Indians still have arranged marriage. So the father will, and, and mother of a child will work and uh, make an arrangement with someone else. It's changing some as India becomes more modernized, but still very much, many come to an arranged marriage. Indians would call what we have, where we typically date someone to find a marriage partner, they tend to call that a love marriage. So one of the fun things when I meet an Indian couple is I ask them, do you have a love marriage or an arranged marriage? And I love hearing the stories on both sides. You might think that all the drama comes from a love marriage, you know, where you date someone and find someone. But there's actually quite a bit of drama that can go on in arranged marriage as well. There's a bartering process. so There's a dowry that may be involved. Sometimes, nowadays, there's tensions between younger Indians who want to have a love marriage and parents who very much want to have an arranged marriage. I work with a number of Indian students at the University of Texas at Dallas who are international students. And just this last Thursday night, At one of our ministry events, I was talking to a young Christian Indian man, and we don't have many of those. Most of the students are non-Christian, but he's a very committed Christian. His girlfriend is a very committed Christian. I led them in a Bible study all last year, and I was just asking him about his time in India over the break and the holiday, and he was sadly telling me that his parents who are professing Christians do not want him to marry this girlfriend that he wants to marry because they haven't arranged the marriage. They want him to have an arranged marriage. They feel insulted that he would even consider having something. And so he's just, you know, pouring his heart out to me. And likewise, this girl's parents, who are Christians, also don't want her to marry this young man because they want to arrange the marriage. So lots of drama that goes on in love and arranged marriages in India. America used to have a system that was much more akin to Indian arranged marriage. There used to be in the United States not too long ago where if a young man really wanted to have the hand of a young woman, he would really have to make a case to the parents. He would have to really ask for their permission. And if it wasn't granted, oftentimes the marriage could not go through. I want to share with you one of the most remarkable marriage proposals that I've ever heard in an American context. And it happened about 200 years ago from a young man named Adoniram Judson to the parents of a young lady named Anne Hasseltine. And what I want to do before I read this proposal that I think you will find incredibly stunning is I want to put you in the place of one of three people, either the young man making this proposal, the young woman receiving this proposal, or the parents who had to make a decision whether they would give their daughter to this young man. So we're going to do a little audience participation for a moment. We're Presbyterians. That's unusual sometimes. But if you're a a male, 13 or older, and you're not married, would you raise your hand? 13 or older and not married. All right. I want you to put your, you can put your hand down. I want you to put yourself in the the position of Adoniram Judson. Okay? What would give you the courage to make this type of proposal? All right. If you're a woman, 13 or over and not married, would you raise your hand? All right. We got a few. Okay. You can put it down. If you're, just raise your hand. I want you to put yourself in the position of Anne Hasseltine. What in the world would make you entertain a proposal like this? Now, if you're married, would you raise your hand? Married people? Okay, put your hand down. I want you to put yourself in the position of Anne Hasseltine's parents. Receiving this, would you say yes or no to this proposal? Okay, so I think most people, 13 and above, have a place here. Listen to this. Adoniram writes to Anne Hasseltine's parents, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly throne and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Now that's a marriage proposal. <laughs> As you put yourself in those shoes, young men unmarried, what would give you the courage to even make such a proposal with any expectation that the parents would say yes? Young married women or older unmarried women, would you say yes to that? <laughs> would you sign up for that? Oh, yes, that sounds like a great marriage life. And oh, parents, <laughs> would you give your daughter to that? to see her no more in this world, to know a life of suffering? Well, you've probably guessed, I wouldn't be reading this, if everyone in the process didn't say yes. But how could a man make such a proposal? What would make a young 22-year-old woman receive such a proposal? And how in the world would parents give their daughter to this? It's because they were shaped by Scripture. Scripture. They understood from places like Romans 15 that the Christ who had bought them had a great priority to extend his kingdom to all the people groups of the world and that the mission of the Savior who had won them and bought them by his grace was more important than their temporal comfort and security. And so they said, yes, God is calling. We will answer that call. And so today, I want to use Romans 15, and we're going to interweave the life of Anne Hasseltine and Judson eventually in the life of this sermon. And I, as we get to the end of this text today and the end of this sermon, I want you to be able to ask and answer two very important questions. And the first will be this. Do you understand the priority of Jesus for his blood-bought church to take the gospel to the unreached people groups of the world? Do you recognize that as the main mission outside of our worship of the triune God flowing out of that, that we would take the gospel to the unreached people groups of the world? Some of you may already recognize that. Some of you, maybe today I can convince you from Scripture that that's the main mission outside of our worship, that flowing out of our worship. And the second thing is, If you can answer yes to that, I I agree that God's word is calling his church to that, then I want to ask and have you answer a second question. Very practically, how is my life as a follower of Jesus Christ being shaped by his great mission for us? This is the practical question. What am I doing with this and the power of God's spirit and dependence on his grace for his glory and my joy? How? Am I prioritizing my life? So today, I want to call you from this text of Scripture as a church to embrace the priority of taking the gospel to unreached peoples, and I want to give you three things about our Savior that I trust will challenge you in dependence on God's Spirit to embrace that priority. First of all, we're going to see that Christ calls us to unreached peoples. Christ calls us to unreached people groups. Secondly, we'll see that Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. Christ works through us to reach unreached people groups. And then we'll really drive the application home in our third point. We'll see that Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached people groups, both as a church and as individual members of his church. So let's begin to think about how Christ calls us to unreached people groups. It's interesting in the book of Romans, if you were to sit down and read it from beginning to end, you would see that in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul is talking about his ministry plans, and he begins to talk about how he's always wanted to come to Rome, and he hopes to finally be able to come to Rome, but in chapter 1, he doesn't say exactly why he wants to come there so bad and what his deepest purpose is until we get to our text in chapter 15. Now, what intervenes between chapter 1 and 15? Reformed people. One of the most glorious expositions of our gospel of grace, of our great sin and God's great provision in Jesus and pulling back the window behind the gospel and seeing a sovereign God who chooses people for himself and calls them into union with Christ and then transforms them by his grace. I think we could all agree a few places you could go in Scripture that have such a glorious exposition of the whole gospel. But why does he do that? Why is that there? I think we discover when we get to especially verse 20 and 22 of our text, where we, we begin to find out what has prevented Paul so long from coming to Rome. It's because he has a great priority. Look at verse 20. This is Paul's mission priority. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, listen to this, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he's quoting Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And he says in verse 22 this, because I have this mission priority of taking the gospel to unreached peoples, this is the reason why I've so often been prevented from coming to you. So we discover what the delay has been. But then when we get to verse 24, we discover what he intends to do. Why does he want to see them so bad? Is it just to have time with them? We'll look at verse 24. I hope to see you, and notice the words, in passing. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. In other words, there's another unreached area, Spain. The gospel has not gone there. And part of the reason I want to come is so that you will help me in the church's great mission to take the gospel where it has not been. When I was living in South India and in Bangalore, I had a ministry meeting I had to go to in, in Cambodia And the only way you can fly from South India to Cambodia is to take a stop in Bangkok, Thailand. And so as I was planning my trip, I realized that I would have a 10-hour layover in Bangkok, Thailand. There was a young man who was in the college and career ministry at Trinity Presbyterian in Plano when I led the college and career ministry there for a number of years. And I had not seen him, and so I, I emailed him, and I said, Hey, Stephen... I'm passing through. I've got a 10-hour layover in Bangkok. It would be so great to get together. I'd love to see you. Maybe you can show me around Bangkok, and then I'll get back on my plane and go to Cambodia. Stephen understood that, hey, he was important to me. I was making a priority of seeing him, but he also understood that my main purpose in flying to Bangkok was not to see him. It was to go to Cambodia. Paul was revealing his hand here. I do want to see you. You're important to me. I want to enjoy your fellowship, but I also want you to help me in my great mission. I have greater plans. You're going to be the springboard. You're going to be the one that by God's grace is going to partner with me to take the gospel to a new area in Spain. I see what Paul's doing is very similar to when my wife Kelly and I applied to Mission to the World back in 2009. As we applied to our organization, they wanted two things especially from us. They wanted to see that we assented to our Reformed doctrine. Now, when I was ordained, only I had to be tested on the Westminster Confession of Faith. But when I signed up with TW, even my wife had to be tested. We both had to agree that we believe that the, the Westminster Confession is the system of doctrine that's taught in the Bible. I think Paul gives us such a clear and thorough exposition of the gospel in Romans Because as he goes to Rome and invites them to partner with him, he's saying, this is the gospel that I preach. You want to know what I believe? This is what I believe. And I think we benefit from having this clear exposition because of that. The second thing that Paul does here in Romans that we also had to do is found in chapter 16. Just turn the page or wherever you see chapter 16. I'm not going to read this, but I want you to notice that from chapter 16, verse 3, all the way down to verse 15 is just a list of names. Greet this person. Greet this person. Greet this person. Now, it's not unusual for Paul and his letters, if you've read them, to have some greetings. What is unusual is just the huge list of people that are here. And scholars say, why does he mention so many people? Well, I think I know why. I think because he's talking about he's beginning to reveal that he wants them to help, I think because he's given them his gospel that he preaches in Romans 1 through 15, he's saying, here's the people that know me, that know that I live my doctrine. I'm not just one who speaks well. I don't just want to get your money. This is what I actually live. Because for Paul, there's an integrity between what we believe and how we're supposed to live. There's a gospel that we profess that we're saved by grace in our union with Christ by faith, but then Christ, when he comes into our life, utterly transforms it by his grace. And Paul says, if you want to see that I live out my doctrine, that I'm truly united to Christ, you can ask any one of these people, and they can testify that the gospel that I profess is shaping my life. And that's what MTW wanted from us as well. Not just a list of our doctrine, but references of employers and pastors and friends. Sometimes when you apply for a job, you give references and they don't actually call or it's very perfunctory, but no, not the ones they did at MTW. They, they really ask the hard questions. Does Kelly, does Richie live out what they say? Is the gospel shaping them? And Paul here writes this most important letter. I believe in the service of the gospel going to unreached people groups. I mean, think about that. Think about the priority of that. Think about the blessing the book of Romans has been to the church, and it's meant to serve the gospel going forward to the least. And we see Paul's plans. Paul also says something very remarkable about his ministry that must shape the way we as the church think about mission. Look at verse 19. He says something that if you were familiar with that geography of that time would utterly stun you. He says in verse 19, by the powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 23, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, I'm coming to you. Now, it probably doesn't stun us because our Middle Eastern ancient geography probably isn't strong. It wasn't for me until I really began to study this text the first time. We kind of all know where Jerusalem is, right? But you think, Illyricum? Where's that? Well, Illyricum was not close by. Illyricum was in Macedonia on the west side. If you think the boot of Italy and you go across the Adriatic Sea, there's Illyricum. And you can check a map of your Bible... Or a map on your phone and just look at Italy, look across the Adriatic Sea and see how far that is from Jerusalem. It is a huge swath of land. And what Paul is doing when he says from Jerusalem, he's setting a southeast limit to Illyricum, a northwest limit, and saying in this region, my ministry's done. In fact, there's no more room for any work for me. It's like he said from Miami, Florida to Seattle, Washington. I mean, it's that type of area. There's no more room for work. How in the world can he say that? I mean, surely not every person has heard the gospel. I mean, maybe if social media was around and the internet, it's been broadcast. But surely in his time there and however many years that was, not every person had heard the gospel. How can he say there's no longer room for any work? Well, it's because Paul's mission was this. He would take the gospel, especially to a strategic city in that area. He would plant a church, get it going, and then he would rely on that church to continue to evangelize and plant churches in the region so that the gospel would go from that major city down into that region. His job was not to go where the church was already working. His job was to establish churches and then go to the next place where there was no gospel Exactly as he expressed in verse 20, to preach where Christ had not already been named. And friends, this has to have implications for us as the church. As we send, as we think about where God may send us if he calls us to go, because the reality is the church is not getting this. Even churches that talk a lot about missions and do missions, too much of our labor, too much of our money, goes to places that are already considered reached with the gospel. Now, please don't mishear me. Our job is to evangelize Arlington. Our job is to continue to plant churches in DFW. We should support works in our Samaria in our Mexico and support other missionaries. But what missiologists tell us is that of every $100 given to missions, do you know how many goes to support those who are working among unreached peoples? $1. Just $1 of every 100 that's actually given for missions. That means there's a mismatch here. And where your money goes is where your people go. That means that there's not enough laborers who are answering the call to missions who are taking the gospel to the unreached areas of our world, places like Japan that are 99.5% non-Christian, places like Thailand that are 99.5% non-Christian, places like India where there are 2,000 unreached people groups, where there are more people in India who've never even heard the gospel in any way than there are people in America, period. We're not getting that. And yet Paul's vision is so succinctly stated in verse 20 that as the church we have to take seriously where he says in verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. This has to be the heartbeat of the church as we think about the mission that God is calling us to. Now where does Paul get this? Is it merely his Damascus road experience? Or is there something deeper? Well, we see when he roots his mission in verse 20, he doesn't refer to the Damascus road experience. He refers to the Old Testament. He says in verse 20, but as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah 52 verse 15, those who've never been told of him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. Paul understood that the mission of the church is to take to the gospel to unreached peoples because he believed the whole Bible. Aren't we who espouse covenant theology? Isn't that one of our distinctives? We believe the whole Bible. We believe God's covenant of grace from Genesis to Revelation. It's one story of God redeeming a people for himself. And I could preach to you for, for now for 10 years on missions just from the Old Testament because God has a plan to save a people from all peoples for himself. And because these things are true, look at how Paul thinks about his calling as a missionary to the unreached. He says in verse 16 that I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do you see the picture that Paul's painting? He's picturing himself as a priest and his offering to the triune God are new peoples who hear and respond to the gospel. He says, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is my offering of worship to you. I mean, did you notice how the every member of the Godhead is mentioned in verse 16? He's a minister of Christ Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. He's in the priestly service of the gospel of God, referring to God the Father. He offers it up through God the Holy Spirit. Paul says if you want to do something that honors the triune God, your creator and redeemer, then get involved in his mission. Take the gospel through sending, through going to those who never heard. And as they respond in repentance and faith and become worshipers of the triune God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you offer your worship to God. And it's acceptable. God is pleased. He delights in our laboring for His great mission, which is to call men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to salvation and through Christ to worship Him. Now, you may be thinking an objection here right now, but hey, Richie, that was 2,000 years ago. I mean, surely, after 2,000 years of the church's work, surely there's no more unreached people groups in our world. Oh, friends, how I wish that were true. The reality is it's quite the different case. There are approximately 16,000 people groups in our world, and 40% of them are considered unreached with the gospel. Billions and billions of people will live, will die, will go to hell, and they'll never met another Christian personally, and they'll never heard the gospel. Entire people groups... I was struck when someone first asked me to think about going to serve in India, and I was actually headed to Cambodia, I thought, and I began to look at Joshua Project, a, as an organization that catalogs unreached people groups, and I was stunned as I looked at this list of the, the 100 largest unreached people groups in the world, and I kept seeing India over there, and I counted, and there were 46 of the 100 largest unreached people groups in the world in this one country of India. The smallest of those forty six groups was six million people. Forty-six people groups, six million or above. The largest is the Shait people, seventy-seven million. Millions, hundreds of millions. Again, the vast majority of whom do not know a single Christian, have never heard the gospel in any way. And so there is a great need. The calling of Paul is the calling of the church, because Paul never did it alone. Sometimes when we think about Paul's mission, we think about this lone ranger missionary. He was not a lone ranger missionary. He was sent out by a local church in Antioch. He never went by himself. He always had co-laborers going with him. He was always part of a missionary team. He never went by himself. It was the church moving with Paul to take the gospel where it needed to go. Now, we've heard regularly probably, if you've heard anything about missions, there's only three ways to respond To God's calling on the church to take the gospel. You can can send, you can go, or you can be disobedient. (laughs) Now, the third option is not an option for us, right? We want to either send or go. But before we get to specifics of that, I want to give you a different way to think about this. As Presbyterians, we love to catechize our children. I suspect that Nate, who joined today, was catechized by his mom and dad. We pass on the Reformed faith... We want them to know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We want them to be able to clearly define justification by faith. We pass on our faith covenantally. We do family worship. But this also means we need to pass on covenantally the mission of Christ's church. We need to be working parents and grandparents with our children and grandchildren to read the great missionary biographies with them, to study the scriptures with them and point them to God's mission to pray with and for them for missionaries doing all kinds of ministry, but especially those who are laboring in underreach people groups. We need to be pleading on our knees with our children for countries like Japan and Thailand and India, where it's 99% non-Christian, places like the Arab world that are so hard to penetrate. We need to be helping our children to find ways to give some of their allowance to missions and to be involved so that our children, that we pass on this covenantal mission so that they grow up knowing that a follower of Jesus is one who, first of all, gives himself to the worship of the triune God, who delights in God's sovereign and free grace in Jesus, and through that takes that message to the unreached people groups of the world either as a sender or as a goer, that our children would know there's only two real options for them as a faithful follower of Jesus. I want you to hear what Anne Judson wrote about that, and we're going to learn that she discovered how difficult it was to follow Jesus. Listen as she wrote to this letter to her mother back in America. I want you to see her passion to pass on God's mission covenantally. She wrote, I know, my dear mother, you long very much to see my little son. I wish you were here to see him. He's a sprightly boy and already begins to be playful We hope his life may be preserved. Now, why? So you just want to keep safe like all of us parents want to do? We hope his life may be preserved and his heart sanctified that he may become a missionary among the Burmans. Now, this is a woman who'd already tasted, I'll tell you a little bit more later, the hardships of a missionary life. And she says, what's more important for my son is that he served Christ in his great mission I want his life preserved so that he can be engaged in God's great mission. Oh, friends, that Christians in America in 2024, that we would have that vision for our children and our grandchildren, that as we obey our Lord's calling to raise up labors for the harvest, that we would be pleading and fasting for our children and our grandchildren to be those who would be sent to the hardest and the most difficult and the most unreached places on our planet, that Christ may be glorified as the gospel goes forward and men and women are drawn to himself. Friends, are you seeing that Christ calls us to the priority of unreached people groups? Now, maybe you're feeling overwhelmed right now. Maybe you think about, I couldn't pray for my children or grandchildren that. I can't encourage them to do that. Maybe even as I talk, you feel a stirring, is God calling me? And you're like, I can't do that. I can't give generously to the work of missions. I can't change my lifestyle so that my budget more reflects a God's mission. If you're feeling that way right now, good, because you can't. The mission of Christ for his church is utterly impossible in your own strength, but he doesn't leave us to our own strength. Christ not only calls us to the unreached, secondly, we see that Christ works through us to take the gospel to the unreached, Look at verses 17 and 18 of Romans 15. Notice how Paul words this to highlight this truth. He says in verse 17, speaking of his own ministry, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except, and pay attention to how he phrases this, what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Theologically, it would be correct for him to say what I have accomplished through the strength of Christ, what I have done by the power of the Spirit, and he'll say that in verse 19. But what he does here is he intentionally puts Christ as the subject, as the main actor. The work of missions is ultimately Christ, and Paul is saying, I'm just the instrument. It's through me, but it's really the work of Christ by his Spirit through me. Look at verse 19. He focuses on the Holy Spirit. He says, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. It's Christ working through his Spirit in God's people that accomplishes this mission. That shouldn't surprise us, don't we? As Presbyterians, clearly and loudly profess that our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. From eternity past to eternity future, we announce and delight in the fact that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is his work from beginning to end. Amen. Can I get an amen, church? It is his work. Why should it not surprise us? that for that great gospel of grace to go out, it's also his work. He's the one that calls. He's the one that motivates. He's the one that empowers so that what seems impossible to us and is impossible to us through our weakness and our sin and our stumbling, he accomplishes for his glory. Anne wrote to how hard it was in her mission. She wrote back to her mother you are doubtless expecting to hear by this time of the Burmans inquiring what they shall do to be saved, and rejoicing that we've come to tell them that they may escape eternal misery. Alas, you know not the least difficulty of communicating I'm sorry, you know not the difficulty of communicating the least truth to the dark mind of a heathen, particularly those heathen who have a conceited notion of their own wisdom and knowledge and the superior excellence of their own religious system. When Mr. Judson, that's an old-fashioned, respectful way of referring to her husband. When Mr. Judson had been telling them of the atonement by Christ, they would reply that their minds were stiff. They didn't believe yet. Listen to this. But these things do not discourage us. Why? She says, we confidently believe that God in his own time will make his truth effectual for salvation. It's Christ's work. Friends, there are so many difficult aspects for those who go and for those who sinned. I felt called to be a missionary at age 19. I didn't actually get into the field until age 32. I think my mother saw my calling to missions like a, the, the headlight of a train coming towards her. <laughs> my mother's a godly woman. She prayed me into the gospel. I became a Christian, humanly speaking, because she pleaded for me with God. But when I answered that call to go and take the gospel to the unreached, Every now and then, not all the time, she say, Richie, are you sure God's not calling you to be a pastor here? You really like to study. You sure God's not calling you to get a Ph.D. and teach in a seminary here? Richie, are you sure that you shouldn't do work among university students? And she would do this periodically. She was supportive otherwise, but she would just kind of put those things in my ear. And then a couple of years before my wife and I went, one day I was having a conversation on the phone with her, and she says, Richie, I need to repent to you. Because all these years, because I love you so much, and the idea of not seeing you for years at a time, not seeing my grandchildren for years at a time, I realize I've been discouraging you, and I don't want to discourage you. I won't say those things anymore. I'm going to fully support you. There was a wrestling in her heart, and it took the grace of God to lead her to a place of repentance where she could send gladly her son. Friends, it's hard. If you go, it's hard. One of my hardest things was leaving Tex-Mex food when I got to India. I missed my family, but oh man, did I not realize how much enchiladas were important to my life. People told us that when we took our two-year-old and our seven-month-old to India, that we were being irresponsible parents to take our children in such a dangerous place. My wife, who is a women's nurse health practitioner and understands medicine, saw the terrible system of Medicine that was there and struggled to trust our children to the Lord when they would get sick. About a month into our time in India, my wife got stung by a mosquito and got dengue fever, and I thought she would die. She was sick for almost two weeks, and there was one night I literally thought she might not make it to morning. Man, it was hard. Hard to be away from family when things are going hard and you can't be there to hug them and support them in practical ways. How do you do that? How do you die to comforts and security? Not by your own strength, only by Christ. If God begins to work this in your life and you begin to say, I've been given a stewardship with my resources, and I want to be a better steward of those resources to support the work of the gospel among unreached peoples, first of all, through my local church and beyond that, and I'm going to begin to live differently, it's going to take grace to go into the realm of sacrificial giving. If you're going to begin to pray faithfully and fervently for unreached nations and peoples and missionaries laboring among them, you won't be able to do it in your own strength. It's going to take grace. And friends, I'm here to tell you there is good news in our text today. Everything that God calls us to do by his grace, he gives the grace to do through Christ in our union with him. So we've seen two things so far. We've seen that Christ calls us to unreached people groups. We've seen that Christ works through us to reach Unreached people groups. And friends, because these things are true, just for a moment, we need to consider our third point that Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached people groups. Again, I just want to highlight from verse 22 and 23 that the thing that kept Paul from going to Rome was because of his passion and commitment to unreached people groups. It wasn't because of lack of affection, it wasn't because they weren't important to him. Anne Judson wrote this to her mom. You can tell she had a good relationship with her mother. she loved her mother. She wrote to her mother, "Oh, how I long to visit your fireside at Bradford." I want to spend a few evenings with you and telling you what I've seen and heard. Alas, we have no fireside, no social circle. We are still alone in this miserable country, surrounded by thousands who are ignorant of the true God and the only way of salvation by Jesus Christ. Oh, pray for us that we may be faithful unto death and never give up or be discouraged, that we may not have immediate success, or though we may not have immediate success, we still feel happy in our employment and have reasons to thank God that he's brought us here. We do hope to live to see the scriptures translated into the Burman language and to see a church formed among these idolaters. She loved her family. It wasn't because she was running away from a hard home life, getting halfway across the world. It's because there's a greater priority for God's people. God had called her to go, and she answered that call. Paul, again envisions the church helping him in Rome. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and not just to worship together, not just to encourage each other in the gospel, but notice what he says in verse 24, to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. What did that look like? I think it would have looked like money. It would have looked like them committing to pray for him, and I think sending some people with him. I think he envisions some of the Roman Christians going with him. Because that seems to be what he did everywhere. Now, the Bible never tells us if Paul made it to Spain. Church history, tradition says he did, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But what we see in Paul's life and in the life of the church is that he's calling us to have our plans shaped by the priority of unreached people groups. So let me just speak for a minute about what that looks like. I want to ask you some hard questions that you need to ask before the Lord When it comes to the sending side, does your budget reflect the fact that you get this? Can you say specifically that how much I give to my local church and missions reflects the fact that I have a stewardship, that I get God's purpose, and here's why I give what I give and don't spend on myself what I do? I can't answer the specific numbers on that. That's before you and the Lord. But I can say and point you to the fact that Scripture calls for sacrificial giving calls for generous giving. It calls us to be involved in God's mission, first of all, through our local church, but through our local church and beyond to the great mission of Christ's church beyond. And so I just challenge you to think before the Lord, does my finances reflect that I get this? Can I say specifically how it does? Secondly, does my prayer life reflect this? Do I have a method, an intentionality to regularly be praying for the gospel among unreached people groups? Am I praying for places like Japan, Thailand, specific people groups in India? I give you three ways you can do this. One, you can go and Google Joshua Project or Operation World. You can download an app that will send you an unreached people group of the day. You can pray for them. You can talk to me, get on my weekly update. I highlight a different unreached people group in India every week. That's what our family uses and, and our family worship once a week. We have one people group that two or three times during family worship will pray for and plead with God for that he would raise up labors. We're praying for the Charmar people of India this week, 54 million people. Ninety-nine percent of them do not know Jesus. Can you look at it and say, I know how my prayer life is reflecting this priority as a family, as an individual, as a church. Now, maybe some of you, if you're between the age of 7 and 70, I want you to consider this. Is God calling you to go? Is God stirring your heart that with whatever you have, skill wise, is God calling you to go? I had a couple that joined us in India. They were 69 years old and they came and served with us for two years and had a wonderful ministry in India. I had a couple at our church at Trinity that retired early at 62. They spent eight years in South America with MTW as missionaries. Young people, those still in school, elementary school, as you think about what is God calling me to be, you know, people ask you that question, what do you want to grow up to be? Is God calling some of you in middle school, elementary school, high school, college, that maybe he's calling you to take the gospel to unreached people groups? I'm praying there's some of you he is. I'm praying that's the fruit of this text today in some of your lives. Now, you may be thinking, Richie, I'm not the pastor-teacher type that's okay. You know what? Some of the hardest places in the world to go to, I can't go to because all of my education is theological, and I'm a pastor, and I can't get a visa to stay in. I got kicked out of India for that reason. I can't go live there because that reason. Some of you could live there. Some of you could go to the places like the Middle East, a Japan, a Thailand, because some of you have jobs where you work for a company that's transnational. You could take a posting in a place like that, live two or three years, and help out the church. Is God calling you to do that? Whatever skill set you have, if you have a heart for it, God can use you, whatever skill set you have. So here's what I'm asking you to do. If you just think, even for an inkling that God may be calling you to go, take the next step. Talk to me after the service. Let's have coffee or lunch. Talk to MTW. Find a way to go on a vision trip. MTW is doing an every three-year missions conference in Atlanta in November, Come to that missions conference. Hear what God's doing around the world. See the opportunities to serve. Rub shoulders with lots of missionaries. Just take the very next step. You're not having to commit to, I'm going to go die in Burma right now. Just take the next step if God's maybe just that stirring your heart. You're between age 7 to 70. Think about that step. I want to close by just telling you about the fruit of Ann's life. Now, I'm not telling you this. This is not a be like Ann Judson sermon. Anne was a sinner. She was a weak, just like you and me. But she's an illustration of what God, by His Spirit, can do in a person's life. After her and and Iron got married, honeymoon's over in two weeks. They're on a slow boat to India. Literally, they get to India where they think they're going to serve, and they're not wanted there. They face persecution, not by Indians, but by others. And they actually had to leave and go to a, a new field to Burma, which is modern day Myanmar. They were told when they went to Burma, "You're wasting your time." Those Burmese people are so ingrained in their religion; they will never listen to the gospel. Don't even bother going there. But we've seen the confidence they had in God. They went, and in the midst of their move, Anne was pregnant. She was eight months pregnant, and in the midst of that move to Burma, she miscarried. Now, our families had two miscarriages. They're hard any stage. Ours were early stage miscarriages, an eight month miscarriage is almost devastating. I mean, all of them are devastating to some degree. And they're away from home, away from family. Then they had a son named Roger. He was the one that I quoted earlier when she says, I hope he'll be preserved. You know what? He died at eight months old himself. She wrote this home. I mean, you would think she'd like, okay, I'm done. I think my wife would have been done. She says she was not deterred. She wrote this to her mother about her son's death. She said, little did I think when I wrote you last that my next letter would be filled with a melancholy subject on which I must now write. Death, regardless of our lonely situation, has entered our dwelling and made one of the most happy families wretched. Our little Roger Williams, our only little darling boy, was three days ago laid in the silent grave. Eight months, we enjoyed this precious gift. Now, these next words, if you're a parent, they're going to resonate with your heart. Eight months we enjoyed this precious little gift in which time he had so completely entwined himself around his parents' hearts that his existence seemed necessary to our own. Parents, you know what that's like. But God has taught us by afflictions what we would not learn by mercies, that our hearts are his exclusive property. Man, what grace God poured in this woman's life to continue to persevere to continue on God's mission. And that wouldn't be her last trial. In 1822, after she'd been gone about 10 years, she became very, very sick and had to return to America because she was having liver problems. But she didn't come with a woe is me attitude. She didn't come and just, hey, I'm done. Okay, I gave my decade. No, she wrote a book. <laughs> she wrote a book called A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. It was one of the earliest histories of American mission. And then she went back. But when she went back, the troubles weren't done. Her husband, Adoniram, got put in jail because he got caught up in something called the First Anglo-Burmese War. So what did Anne do? She got a little shack outside the prison. Every day for two years, she took food to him. She prayed for him. She lobbied with government officials to have him released. And historians say, humanly speaking, she was the only reason he survived and got out. So after two years, he's finally released. Now, if it was my family, we would probably have gone home then. (laughs) Okay, we've done enough. We don't want to get thrown in jail again. We've already lost children. We've done our time. Let's go back. But not the Judsons. They stayed. They continued to labor. She actually died not too long after that in 1826 at the age of 36 from contracting smallpox. Just before she died, she had a little girl, Maria, born, and that child died a few months after her death. Was her life wasted? Dying at 36, facing so much tragedy, only 14 years on the field. Was her life wasted? What did she accomplish? She actually accomplished quite a bit by God's grace. She shared the gospel a lot. She ministered to orphan girls. She educated children. She was actually the first Protestant to translate any of the scriptures into Burmese in 1819 when she translated the gospel of Matthew. She wrote a catechism in Burmese. She translated the books of Daniel and Jonah into Burmese, and she wrote a lot of letters home that were published as devotional writings. That's why I'm reading from them. Some scholars say that her work and writings made the role of missionary wife as a legitimate calling for 19th century Americans. Another said her letters and example kept missions alive for American Baptists. Because of her numerous biographies, she remains the most influential missionary woman in American history. And perhaps one of her greatest achievements was just keeping her husband alive. Because though she died, Adoniram went on to live. And he married a second wife, and she died. And he married a third wife. And he lived until the age of 62. And Adoniram was a remarkable man himself. When him and Anne were on that boat from India to Burma, they said this, If God will keep us alive long enough to translate the scriptures, to see a church planted with about 100 people we would see that as just amazing success. That would be beyond our wildest dreams if that could happen before we both die. What happened when Iram died at the age of 62? They had indeed translated the entire scriptures in Burmese, but it wasn't one church with 100 people. It was about 100 churches with 8,000 people because of the faithful labors of Anne and Iram. Because a young man and a young woman And her parents said yes to that incredibly amazing marriage proposal. Friends, this morning I urge you from Romans 15 to embrace the priority of taking the gospel to unreached people groups because Christ calls us to the unreached, because Christ works through us to the unreached, and because Christ expects our plans to be shaped by the priority of unreached peoples. I want you to pray with me for a moment, and I'm going to give you just a couple minutes of responsive, silent prayer. I don't want the things that God is working in your heart right now just to be distracted by something else. I want you to just pray through these three points for just a second. For just a few seconds, would you praise God for His incredible mercy, for His mission to go to all peoples? Would you praise God for the fact that He condescends to entrust His gospel message to us? Just for a few moments of silent prayer, would you praise your Savior? second thing I want you to pray about is how Christ works through us to unreach peoples. Maybe you're feeling convicted that you need to explore a next step to consider going. Maybe God is challenging you to be more devoted to prayer for missions and missionaries. Maybe God's calling you to be more generous in your giving, and those things seem impossible to you. Would you just confess that to him? Would you just own up to that? Would you repent in areas you need to repent in and your lack of trust. Just, Just spend a few moments just repenting, asking for God's help in this, just for a moment. Thirdly, thinking about how your plans are to be shaped, would you, would you pray that God would just give you wisdom? Maybe you're not feeling any particular conviction, and yet there's this call for our lives to be shaped by the priority. Would you just spend a few moments praying that God would continue to reveal to you the specific ways you need to grow as either a sender or one who goes? Just, just for a few moments. Father in heaven, you've heard the prayers of your people this morning. Please answer them mightily for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.